magic lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author whose mission is to help people achieve a deeper connection with their horses through his transformational training program. Just because he knows that you know the spark is creeping G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and today I want to talk about another principle of training. So back in episode 27 I did that on the principles of training which was originally it's I did it as a TV show that ended up being um, broadcast here in the US on a Roku channel called Farm and Ranch TV in, in uh, Europe and the UK on Horse and Country TV and the principles of training were just some principles are you know over the years doing clinics and stuff and uh, you'd help somebody with their horse and, and to solve an issue and then you'd help somebody else with their horse to solve an issue and the two issues might be completely different but when you looked at the principle behind how we dealt with the issue uh, it was the same and so as I was doing clinics and also you know watching other trainers and things like that I started formulating these principles in my head and um you know, I think, well, that that exercise there falls under this principle and that what they did just then falls under that principle. And I kept, you know, come up with these principles and it maxed out at 12 principles. After a while, I could not, uh, you know, I could, I could watch, uh, you know, a world-class, say, show jumper or whatever or dressage rider or whatever, give a, give a lesson or give a clinic and everything they'd say, I'd think, well, that falls under that principle and that falls under that principle and that falls under that principle. And I kind of ran out of principles. But recently I've come to believe there is another principle that I didn't include in there that covers a great deal of the work that I've been doing for quite a while now. And that principle I'm going to call relationship before horsemanship and so if you think about you know if someone said uh, that guy's a really good that guy's really good at horsemanship or that guy's a really good horsemanship clinician or anything like that you think well that guy is really good at applying techniques in such a way that makes sense to the horse and it works and you get a positive outcome out of it and so that's the horsemanship part but Really what uh, I've been doing for quite a while, and it's just amazing how well it works, is working on relationship before horsemanship. And I kind of came up with that that name because I couldn't, I had a guest on the podcast a while ago, uh, her name's Sarah Schlotty, and she's from Canada, and she's a trauma therapist. And she wrote a great article on her, her website, it was a blog on her website, and it was called connection before concepts and that's what i'm trying to get across here but uh that's sarah's saying so i'm gonna i'm gonna call it a uh, relationship before horsemanship just because i'm a horsemanship guy but it really doesn't matter what to call it the whole thing's really about giving the horse a sense of being heard before you start to try to shape their behavior in any way and probably the you know, the most um, obvious way of doing this is, is develop, um, developing a relationship with a horse before you try to train him to do anything. So, you know, last year when this whole COVID thing quit, uh, quit, started, sorry, it hasn't quit yet. When this whole COVID thing started, I put a series of videos out on YouTube. And the whole point was, you know, over the years I've had 
since I've been doing this relationship type stuff, I've had a lot of, say, competition riders who say, yeah, I'd like to do that stuff, but I don't have time. I've got a, you know, I've got a horse show in a month or I have a horse show once a month. So, you know, I don't have, I can't take the time off to do that. And when COVID hit, I thought, well, people are going to, there's not going to be any horse shows. No one's going to be going anywhere. And so I did a series of um, videos on YouTube and it was, um, I did it for my sponsors, Weaver Leather, and they asked me to do some videos. And so I did them, and the, the whole series was called Reconnecting with Your Horse During Coronavirus. And it was all about, okay, you've been given a gift right here. I know this is a global pandemic and it's not a good situation, but we've been given a gift with our horses to where we don't have to keep them ready for something or other. We can take a step back, if that's your mindset, and we can take a step back and we can take the time to connect with them or reconnect with them if we ever had connection with them. And the first exercise that I suggested people do was to go out in a pasture with your horse, take a chair, go out there and just sit down. Sit in your chair. You can read a book. You can meditate. You can sit there and listen to the birds. You can sit there and scroll through Facebook. It really doesn't matter. The whole point of this was, because these horses tend to think, when you show up, you're going to ask me to do something. And think about, think about making friends with people. Like the first time you meet someone, if you said, hey, can you borrow a hundred, can I borrow a hundred bucks off you? Hey, can I borrow your lawnmower? Hey, I'm going to move house soon. Can you come over and help me move my furniture? You know, that would not be the way to make friends. When you first meet somebody, and you become friendly with them, you, you, you share time together, you share experiences together, but it's not asking for anything. And if you think about what we do with our horses, every time we show up, you know, some, some horses, the, every time a human shows up, if they don't show up with food, they are showing up to get that horse to go and ask them to do something. And so it's just a, it was a time to change that, you know, put a bit of paradigm shift in that to where you show up and you do absolutely nothing. You don't ask them to do a single thing. And it's funny, I uh, recently went to a Carolyn Resnick clinic. So Carolyn Resnick has this um, thing called Waterhole Rituals. And Carolyn doesn't teach anymore. Uh, She's got a lovely lady named Nan Zinsmaster who does all the all the clinics now, and it was so amazing. I wanted to go and see this thing because Carolyn Resnick's been doing relationship work with horses for 30 years, and I'm, I've am i just recently stumbled across it in the past few years, and the bit of the stuff I've been doing, it's it's been mind-blowing, the, the just the responses and the changes in these horses. And so at this uh, Carolyn Resnick clinic, she has this thing called the waterhole rituals and this I think there's seven rituals. But the first one is you go take a chair, go in your horse's pasture and you sit down and you either meditate, read or journal, I think. And um, all of those things that have put you in a, in a certain mindset. And I think she might even have some suggestions about what you journal about. But, you know, so that's putting you in a certain mindset. You know, when you read, you're in probably uh, beta, alpha, theta, probably in, in alpha uh, brain waves. If you meditate, you probably can, if you're good, you can go into, into uh, theta brain waves. But it just keeps you out of that beta mindset with that monkey mind, that chattering mind sort of thing going on. 
But even if you went out, and that's really good, I think that's a good thing, but even if you went out there and got on your phone and scrolled through Facebook for half an hour, it wouldn't matter, you would still be making an impact because you have shown up and you are sharing space with them with no thought of any outcome. You're not trying to get them to do anything. So, you know, think of worst case scenario, you get on your, you get on your phone and scroll through Facebook. Um, at least right there, you are not, um, you are not asking anything of your horse. You're just being in their space, even though they would realize that you weren't very present. Um, or then you could go in there and you could just sit, you could meditate, you could do all sorts of stuff. But that's, that's the big, that was the beginning of that, um, series that I put up that was reconnecting with your horse during, during COVID. And that's the, basically the first thing that they do in Carolyn Resnick's, uh, waterhole rituals thing. And that, that type of connection or relationship is what you do before you start to train on the horse. But there's a, there's another type. And, uh, this is the type that was basically in, uh, Sarah's article her blog on her Equisoma website. And I want to talk a bit about, I want to go over a bit of that, but there's another type, which is creating the connection during the training. So before a lot of interactions, you can, you can have, you can create that connection or that relationship in the process of the training. So, you know, if you think about the, the most, you know, the, the one I've talked about the most, along this line is actually the story of the Mustang in uh, the, at the clinic in Texas. So if you think about that, that, you know, I talked about this quite a bit in one of the earlier podcasts and I've talked about it quite a bit in on YouTube and all sorts of places. But, you know, if you think about that major change that had with that bolting Mustang that, you know, that was four years ago and he hasn't bolted since. And the only thing I did was step back when he turned his head and said that concerns me. I, I really did. I really did nothing else. And it's uh, that was where I really discovered this this thought. But uh, you know what I might do right now is read you some stuff from uh, Sarah Schlotty's website. So she's got a website called Equusoma E Q U U S O M A, and her blog on this actually comes from her work with um, you know equine assisted therapy and what they're taught to do with with horses in the those situations. But let me read you something from there because I think this, uh, you know, really ties into what I'm talking about here. So this is directly from her, her blog. And it said, what I was first taught in a number of approaches in the equine facilitated whatever field, a great deal of emphasis is placed on how one approaches a horse. This isn't true of all approaches, of course, and there remains a large number of horse human interaction programs where the animal does not have much of a say or a voice. However, in the ones where the horse's needs are prioritised, I learned early on about the importance of releasing pressure at the first sign of a no. This flies in the face of what most people are taught, but from an attachment standpoint, this is crucial. Attachment theory focuses on the importance of providing safe haven conditions in relationship, which are foundational to the development of trust. The primary way caregivers do this is through the accuracy and the responsiveness of their attunement in combination with their ability to provide co-regulation. When we are seen and heard, feel felt and get gotten by another individual, and that's her paraphrase of Dr. Daniel Siegel's um, 
thing that said, you know, he says attunement is being seen, being heard. Sarah has added to it and said attunement is the sense of being seen, being heard, feeling felt and getting gotten. Our nervous system begins to settle and we begin to feel safe in relationship. When we feel safe, as polyvagal theory suggests, many more things are possible. A deeper sense of intimacy and connection, a capacity for play and creativity, the attention and focus necessary for learning and other higher order brain functions, and the ability to rest and digest effectively. Our nervous system can do all these things because it's in a state of sustainable physiology that is conducive to experiencing those said things. That is a lot of... That's a lot of... uh, technical talk right there but what she's talking about there is and i've talked about this quite a bit on the podcast is is attunement that sense of being seen being heard feeling felt and getting gotten and that's her saying and i actually did a a podcast uh the podcast number two was actually about polyvagal theory which talked about a lot of this stuff and you know what's funny is i'm not a scientist i am a uh, I call myself a dot joiner, right? I don't do the research on all this scientific stuff. I just take all the dots and join them together. And really, I'm an educator and I'm trying to help people get along with their horses better and make better decisions about the things they do with their horses. And when I really started, you know, like the instance with the Mustang and all that sort of stuff, when I really started basically allowing the horse to say no like when that mustang turned his head and he says no i don't want you to go down there instead of me saying hey move your head i want to go down here and disengage you i stepped back and i said i see that and once i started doing that and then i I did that and then i started doing it in other situations it really made a huge change in uh, the horses and and so I was trying to encourage people to think this way. And then I read about polyvagal theory, which, which really tells you that that sense of being seen and being heard, that sense of community puts the brakes on and, and slows everything down, stops you being worried about stuff. And so I really started to talk about polyvagal theory in a way that helped people make better informed decisions for their horses because it because it seems to match up with it if if you understand if you understand polyvagal theory as it's written it will help you make better decisions with your horse and what's funny is there's every time i posted like a youtube video or something on polyvagal theory there's a number of people from around the world who will send me this long involved email telling me how that polyvagal theory is a load of crap and it hasn't been proven, and this and that and something else. And what they don't do is they don't offer me uh, another explanation as to why doing those things that way works. And I really don't give two hoots if polyvagal theory is right or wrong. I mean, you can you can take scientist you can take any scientific subject, and you can have people on one you can have scientists on one side of the fence and scientists on the other side of the fence. You know, I'm. I'm big into the the woo-woo sort of stuff, and I did a podcast quite a while ago on books that have influenced me. One of those books was a book by a PhD guy named Dean Radin, and uh, it's called uh, Real Magic, and it's basically, it's not sleight of hand magic, it's how you can actually manifest things, how you can cause things to happen, and um, he has actually quantified it to where he's, he's done a lot of experiments, and he's pretty much got it down where he can quantify this stuff. And, but 
Some of it he can't quantify yet, but he's almost on it. But in the book, he says to a group of scientists, if I could prove this stuff, this stuff I'm talking about, if I could prove it to you in a scientific way, double-blind studies, all that sort of stuff, if I could prove this to you, would you believe it then? If I could prove it to you, would you believe it then? And they all said no. Like their, their scientific mind cannot wrap their head around that that could be possible. And so, you know, the, what I'm saying here is on, on every side of the fence, that, you know, on any scientific thing, there's probably two different ways of looking at it. And, you know, we used to think the world was flat and the, the, you know, the sun revolved around the earth and all sorts of things like that. But what I'm saying here is I don't care if polyvagal theory is right or wrong. I mean, as far as my personal experience with, with what it's saying and like my childhood and the shit I ended up with and what I've been doing with horses, it seems to make sense. And if it makes sense, then, and I tell people about it, then it causes those people to make uh, good decisions with their horses in the management of their horses and their approach to their horses. Then for me... It works. I don't care if it works or not, but, but that, that science seems to, to back that up. So if you're listening to this and you're not into polyvagal theory, um, that's, that's fine. I'm, I, have, I hold nothing against you, but um, if you can give me a better, a better uh, explanation as to why this stuff works, uh, go ahead. But uh, yeah, if you're not into polyvagal theory, that's not a big deal. Like I said, I don't particularly care if it works or not. It helps people make better decisions about their horses. So I'm going to go back to Sarah's uh, blog here for a second. She says, coming back to releasing the pressure when a horse says no. If a horse is refusing something, pinning his ears, not allowing someone to approach and so on, I was taught this might be a sign of either a relational or a boundary rupture, typically as a result of misattunement or mistreatment. Horses experience these kind of misattunements all the time where we ignore the body language and attempts at telling us that they're in pain, they're uncomfortable, they're scared and so on. We force them to do things they're not ready to do, often at great cost to them for our benefit. It's not always big things. Most often it's repeated misattunements that create the biggest disconnects. In turning a blind eye to what the horse is communicating to us, we in turn communicate something powerful to them that we don't see them or get them. And that's, you know, something, you know, this whole rabbit hole and down came about because of a horse called Sherlock and he was shut down. Okay. Very, very shut down. And he, I think he was shut down. You know, he came from a very, he was a reigning horse and he came, he was trained by two of the best reigning trainers in the world and they do a great job. They turn out great, I mean, amazing horses all the time. And so, what did they what did they do to this one well the, the the thing about sherlock is i think he is super 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 sensitive and um you know when you are when you are really sensitive and some things happen that might overwhelm you a little bit you don't complain about it you go inside your head so i don't you know i don't think he had any mistreatment but the the you know reigning training is really quite structured and quite repetitive and you know, it's possibly a little bit like being in, in, in the army, so to speak. And so Sherlock, he was, he was shut down probably from that, but you don't really even have to go through all that to cause a horse to shut down. Like Sarah said in that thing, you know, 
It's often repeated misattunements that can lead to the biggest disconnects. In turning a blind eye to what the horse is communicating to us, we in turn communicate something powerful to them. We don't see them or get them. And, and this, I know this really happens in human relationships. I'm very guilty of it there. But um, so this is, this is the part where we, we start to work. You know, this, this is all related to when you're training a horse. And I'm going to read you. A little bit more from uh, Sarah before I, I'm going to give you some real life examples here in a bit uh, from clinics all around the world, but I'm just going to read something from Sarah's here. And she says, I was taught years ago to pause at the slightest hint of a horse's attempt at communicating no, which looks like a rock stepping backwards half a step and then waiting for things to settle before seeing what wants to happen next, both for the horse and for you. It's not necessary a full stop and backing off to a further distance, although at times it might look like that in the beginning, especially if we missed earlier signs of no or earlier thresholds, but rather it's being mindful of the other's experience and responding to that. Through training in somatic experiencing and a variety of attached focus therapies, I later understood the underlying reasons for this important of this kind of titration from a neurobiological standpoint. So I'm getting pretty sciencey here, but this is good, this next bit. Listen to this. Give the horse an experience of consistent attunement first to provide safe haven conditions and a nervous system state that is conducive to relationships. Then, when there is safety in the relationship, you can begin to make requests, requests or asks or use techniques. But to make requests and use techniques before there is a neuroception of safety built in the relationship through consistent attunement and co-regulation is putting the proverbial cart before the horse. Sustainable physiology involving the social engagement system needs to be in place first. Otherwise, you'll be fighting survival and conservation physiology with techniques that will be less effective or that result in behavior that gives the illusion that the horse is connected or willing when, in fact, it may be simply overriding. So right there, that's a lot of technical, I'm not going to call it garbage, jargon. Let's call it technical jargon that I probably don't really understand all the words there, but Read between the lines, that's what I intuitively did with the Mustang in Texas. And, you know, this was before I'd even heard of polyvagal theory, but that's why, you know, polyvagal theory and also, uh, you know, human trauma stuff has, has, has uh, really resonated with me because it, it all makes sense to the things I've been doing with the horses. And I had a horse at a clinic, oh... Just before COVID hit, I was in Australia and I was doing some clinics there and a lady had a horse at a clinic and this horse, it was only new to her and the lady's a very, very, very good horsewoman. The horse was only new to her and uh, she said, oh, I said, so what's going on with this horse? And she said, oh, this mare, she is like, she really pins her ears at you and she's been really hard to touch on the, like you touch her on the side and she'll pin her ears at you and carry on. I went, oh, that's interesting. And she was standing kind of in front of the horse, you know, holding the lead rope. There's probably, there's some slack in the lead rope and there's probably, you know, six or eight feet between her and the horse, you know, two or three meters between her and the horse. And I approached this mare and as I walked towards her, I probably got maybe 15 feet away, something like that. And she pinned her ears at me, really glared her ears at me. I just took a step back and said, oh, she didn't like that, did she? And so then I took another step. I waited for her to look like she got over that thought. And then I took another step forward and she pinned her ears at me and I stepped back. 
waited for her to get over that thought and stepped forward again. And she pinned her ears at me. And once again, I stepped back. And about this time, I said, is there anybody here in this clinic who thinks I'm teaching this horse to attack me? She pins her ears and I step back. Who thinks I'm teaching her to attack me? And there's one lady, her hand shot straight up. And she, she didn't say anything, but the look on her face was like, me, 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 me. And I said, you know what? You must be a very experienced horse. She was the only person. There's a hundred spectators there, I think. Uh, she was the only person there who put her hand up. And I said, are you a really experienced horse person? And she says, yes, I am. And I'm like, yep, that's where that comes from. I said, five years ago, I'd have stuck my hand up and said, this guy's an idiot and he's about to get his lunch eaten by this horse. But I said, just watch this, okay? I am stepping back when she, when I approach her and she pins her ears. And now just watch what happens now. And then I approached her again. And each time I did it, she pinned her ears less and less. And eventually I could walk up to her and she didn't pin her ears and she kind of sniffed my hand. And I said, see what I was doing, try not to think about it as stepping back or losing a fight or whatever. She is saying, hey, I have a personal boundary there that I'm telling you about. And I said, hey, I see your personal boundary. Where you could go wrong is if you walk towards her, she pinned her ears And you didn't notice the first time she pinned her ears and you kept getting closer and she pinned her ears more and you kept getting closer and then she pinned her ears more and lunged at you and then you stepped back. Oh, that would be teaching them to eat you because what you didn't do was tell her, I noticed your threshold. If you kept going through that threshold and then at some point in time, her threat got so overwhelming and you stepped back. Yeah, by all means, you would be teaching her to eat you and they would probably maul you a little bit and bite you or whatever, you know, but the, the big thing is, and it's, and it's not when a horse pins her ears, you step back. If I was standing still and I wasn't anywhere near her, so I'm not trying to encroach on her space. And she made a point of walking across the arena towards me. And as she approached me, she pinned her ears. I would kind of do like a jumping jack and slap my legs on my side to just make a big lot of energy that without directing it at her. And she'd kind of, she would have stepped back and looked at me like, Whoa, there's your boundary, okay? But if I'm approaching her, then I'm the one crossing her threshold and, and she's the one who gets to say where the line is. If she's approaching me, I get to say where the line is. Um, and so once I got through that bit, and she didn't approach me, I was approaching her, but I've just given that as an example because I, I posted this on Facebook, I posted that, that story on Facebook after I got back from that clinic and I had so many people say, so when my horse walks towards me and she pins her ears, I should step backwards. I'm like, no, 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 no. You will get eaten if you do that. Um, But it's all about letting them know you saw their concern. I understand that bothers you and I'm going to step back. So eventually I can walk up to her and she's not in the slightest bit concerned about me walking up to her. She doesn't tell me to get lost, anything like that. And so if you think about it, I have now, I have now, um, created some some trust a sense of safety around me that that no means no and we've all heard that back about 10 12 years ago maybe 15 years ago I can't remember when it was but you know it was about and I can't remember I don't remember when it was if it was in America or in Australia or it was an ad campaign that read in both places I can't remember but it was an ad campaign about or a whole movement about sexual assault and it was no means no 
Well, it's the same with horses. No means no. When they tell you no, don't come any closer. It doesn't mean don't come any closer ever. It just means don't come any closer now. And, you know, that's a little bit like, you know, they, they tell people at Alcoholics Anonymous that uh, when you wake up in the morning, you don't have to think, oh, my God, I can't drink for the rest of my life. You just have to think, I can't drink today. And it's a little bit like that. It's not like I can't approach this horse ever, but I have to honor that threshold right now. And with this mare doing that, she gains some trust in me. She realizes not that she has control over me. Like it's, it's not a control issue. Um, that's not to say she has control over me for the rest of her life. But in that instance, I said, I see your concern. And that's that sense of being seen, being heard, feeling felt and getting gotten. I'm starting to sound like an auctioneer saying that one. And then, so the lady that owns this horse now, she said, but if you touch her on the side, she, she gets real ear pinny too. And so then the next thing I did with her is the next step of the things you do. So in, in Sarah's article, she said there's, there's three ways you can go about um, applying pressure. And she said, number one, releasing pressure when the horse does what you ask, which is classical negative reinforcement as used in natural horsemanship, etc. Number two is releasing pressure when the horse shows sign, a sign of being calm in the face of a feared stimulus or something that bothers them. And she said a version of pressure release, which is operational counter conditioning, where the stimulus no longer acts and is adversive, whatever that means, used in CAT H or constructional approach training for horses. And if anybody's been following my videos, I kind of got into that CAT H there for a while. But I, I found that, and I found that CAT H um, is not applicable in all cases, as in this case. And then the third thing, so the second, the first thing, releasing pressure when the horse does what you ask. The second thing, releasing pressure when the horse shows a sign of being calm in something that can used to concern them. And the third thing is releasing pressure at the slightest sign that a horse is experiencing aversion or a no. So what I did with this mare was I did the number three first. She pinned her ears, I stepped back. Did that till I could approach her. Now I'm approached her, I've got through the number three one. Now I'm going to go to the number two one, which is releasing pressure when the horse so shows signs of being calm in the face of a stimulus that used to bother them. And this mare does not like being touched on the side. And so I would put my hand on her, uh, probably just behind a wither. And when I put my hand behind a wither, she pinned her ears at me and I just left my hand there and waited. And she pinned her ears, pinned her ears, pinned her ears. And then she stopped pinning her ears and I took my hand away and then I stepped away from her. Okay. I think I stepped back completely away from her. So I've just done number three to approach her, releasing, releasing pressure at the slightest sign the horse says no. Then when I got up close to her, I put my hand on her. I did the number two, releasing pressure when the horse shows, shows sign in, of calm in the face of something that bothers them or they perceive bothers them. I did that, but when she showed... Uh, like she was feeling better about it. Then I stepped away and left her alone for a minute till she kind of reset herself and thought about that. Then I approached her again. Now, if I approach her again and she pins her ears at me, we're back to step one, aren't we? Okay. We really work on the relationship here, but she didn't pin her ears ever at me approaching her ever again, but I stepped back to make sure she didn't. And then I put my hand on her and she pinned her ears at me and I waited and she took her and she changed her expression. She put her ears forward, a softener expression. I took my hand away, then I stepped away. And I did this for maybe 10 minutes, I guess. 
And then I could walk up to her. She doesn't pin her ears. I could put my hand on her sides and she doesn't pin her ears. She doesn't have a bad expression about that. And so that's all I did with her. And then when I stepped away from her after a while, she just kind of stood there and started licking and chewing and her head got really low and it's like, oh, you saw me. And, and people, when I explained this on my Facebook group, in I read, it was written word in my Facebook group in a post, everybody said, well, why didn't you take your hand away when she pinned your ears at you when you put your hand on her? That you pin, you, you stepped away when she pinned her ears at you when you're approaching her. And, and the, the difference, I think, the reason I did what I did when I did it was because I'd already gained some trust in her, okay? I don't think she's going to bite me. And she knows I'm listening to her, and she knows I'm not going to do her any harm. So I just, you know, I just left my hand on her side, and she pinned her ears. And when I didn't, I, I, I bet if I put my hand on her side, and then I pinned her ears, she pinned her ears, and then I kicked her in the belly, I, get, I bet the, the next time I put my hand on the side, she'd pin her ears for good reason because you're about to kick me in the belly. But I just put my hand on the side, she pinned her ears at me, and I just waited for her to go, oh, that's it? That, that's, that's all you're going to do? Oh, well, that's not so bad. And then her ears came forward and I took my hand away. And it's just, you know, there's so much of that you can do. I recently had, or last year, I had a, a Mustang mare here that came in with some... Um, she had a problem going forward under saddle. The rider would ask her to go forward and the mare would pin her ears and kick out and not go forward. And one of the things I use, one of the tools I use a lot in what I do is a flag. And I don't necessarily use it to make the horse move. For the most part, I use it to draw the horse's attention, to get the horse's attention. Um, and a lot of times when I get their attention with the flag, I take the flag away and then I'm communicating that, I saw your change in focus. That's all connection stuff too. That's all relationships, relationship stuff as well. But I eventually get to where I can move their body with the flag. But when I do, their thoughts go towards the flag. So it really puts a really good bend in their body without actually touching them with the flag. You can just, you know, take that flag back towards their hind end and their eyes and their ears follow it around. Their head follows it around. So they really bend in the middle and they move away from it. And so for me, it's quite important to have that, have a good relationship with that flag. Well, this mare had been, I think she'd been chased around with the flag to go a lot, but she'd also been desensitized a lot as in wave the flag and not expected to have any response to it. And so she, consequently, she didn't have a very good attitude about the flag. She would pin her ears at the flag actually. And when I first got her, I realized that she was, um, she had separation anxiety. So, you know, she was in a, she was in a pasture outside and I noticed she just fence paces, you know, she was not, she, where, where she comes from, the lady that owns her, she lives on her own. And when she came here, I put her on her own for a while. You know, I wanted to integrate her with another horse as soon as possible, but I, put her on her own and she fence paces back and forth. Well, the other problem that she had when she arrived with the, was the owner said she cannot, in the trailer, she can't stand still. She just stomps and stomps and stomps and moves around in the trailer. Well, I noticed the first thing when I got her was she moves around in a pasture, you know, which is much bigger than the trailer, but she didn't often stand still in there. She just paced back and forth along the fence towards, mm, I'm not sure what it was towards. I think 
this mare, it was actually towards where she lives, <laughs> funnily enough. Uh, we had a broodmare in Australia one time, or a mare that we bought in Australia, who we bought as a broodmare. And we bought her from a place not called uh, Cowra, which is about an hour and a half, hour and a stri- hour's driver. So from where I grew up was a little town called Young, and that's where I was living. And we put this mare, and Cowra is to the east of Young. And we put this mare in a, in a pasture at our place, which was on the, um, probably on the western side of our place. And she paced back and forth on the eastern side of her pasture, which is where the other horses were. And I figured she had separation anxiety from other horses. But we moved her around a little bit and she ended up putting her in a pasture that was on the eastern side of our place. So all of our place, it's up against the eastern boundary. So all our horses are to the west of this horse and she still paced up and down the eastern side. And I, I'm like, that's exactly the direction that she came from, where she was born. And so I figured, you know, she might be like a bit of like of a homing pigeon. And, and I always thought that, but didn't really have any proof of it. And a number of years later, I was me- reading a Mark Rashid book, and Mark was on the podcast here with me recently. And one of his books, he said he had a horse did the same thing, and he figured out that it was like a homing pigeon, like that's where I came from. So this Mustang mare I had, she kind of did much the same thing. And uh, I thought, well, I'm going to, I know how to work on this. I'm going to put you in the round pen and I'm just going to use the flag to attract your attention. So you're going to, you're going to be walking back and forth along one side of the round pen. I'm just going to wave this flag a little bit. And when you flick your ear towards, I mean, this is a technique I use a lot. I'm not putting any pressure on it as in getting her to go. I'm actually using the flag in a, in a way that would evoke curiosity. Like if a plastic bag was slowly blowing across the ground, I kind of wave it in that little sort of a fashion and those horses will look at it and I'll take it away. And you can really communicate to them your awareness of their awareness doing this and that's what creates the connection. But with her, I went to do that and she pinned her ears, when she saw that flag, she pinned her ears at it. And so I knew I could not use the flag to help her with her separation anxiety whether it's from other horses or from where she lives and I'm not even sure and she paces at home too and I think it actually might have been the where she came from before she came here is north of here northeast of here but where she came from before that the reservation or the the you know the BLM where she came from is also a lot further northeast than that so maybe it was back to her homing ground but so what I did with her was I said, I cannot communicate my awareness of you with the flag. The flag doesn't work. And so I put the flag away, but I want to communicate my awareness so that she feels better about her situation. And what I did was I matched steps with her. So when I did that initial video for reconnecting with your horse through, during coronavirus, the first step was sit out in the pasture with them. Okay. Um, and just hang with them until they start to connect with you. But then I said the next step you can do is you can go out in the pasture and you can match steps with your horse, which means if they're out there grazing, you know, and as horses graze, they put one foot forward and one foot back and then they kind of eat around that foot in front and then they put the other foot forward and they kind of take their nose and they eat around that front foot and then back to the middle and they put another foot forward. What you can do is you can go out there and stand a distance from them to where you're not bothering them at all and just match steps with them. Just move your feet exactly as they move their feet. If they go for a walk, you go for a walk and stay the same distance from them, but just match steps with them. And Because if you look at horses uh, that 
graze together. You look out there, they were matching steps a lot of the time. Horses that move together match steps. And it's one way that they, um, you know, I think there's, thing, you know, I've read about things called mirror neurons and I think it, it fires those. But, and you can do it with people if, they, you know, like salesmen will be taught that if you want to, if you want to develop a connection with someone you're talking to, mirror their posture. If you got one, you know, if they got their right leg crossed over their left knee, cross your right leg over there, your nef- left knee, and just just mirror their posture. It's one way of creating connection. Uh, so that was the second video I did in that series, and st- these are still on YouTube. So what I thought, I'm, and I'd never done this before with a horse that has separation anxiety, but I thought I'm going to try it with her. So I matched steps with her back and forth in that in that round pen, and it, I probably did that for half an hour. And there was a time when she left the fence and came over to me and said, "Hey, how's it going?" And then she left again, but she did. It, it did break that pattern of being, "Where's my friends?" or "Where's my home?" or whatever it was. And then I put her away. And then I thought, "Well, I don't need to do that in the round pen. I can do that with her in a pasture." So every day for seven days, I think it was, I went out the par- in the pasture with her, and I was probably. 30 or 40 feet from her and when she walked along the fence I walked along the fence and matched steps with her when she turned into the fence I turned the same way she turned and walked along the other way and matched steps with her I did that for about seven days before and and she would come and kind of come and say hi sort of a thing you know to check in but then she'd go back over to the fence and I think it was the seventh day her she had two owners and they they came down to see her and I said, okay, I'm going to get her out and put her in the round pan and I'm going to do with her what I've been doing, except I've been doing it in the pasture, but I put it in the round pan, put her in the round pan. And, um, she started pacing up and down the fence. So I went in and I matched steps with her within, I don't know, five minutes or so. She came over and stood by me and just hung with me. And I said to the owners, I said, you know, this is, this is odd. This is not something that has happened up to this point in time. She's come over and said hi, but she's never stayed there and said, and look at it, she's just standing right here. And I stood with her there for a bit and I thought, well, she's been good here. So I said, one of the owners, do you want to come in here and try it? So I said, just come in here and stand with her. If she walks off, just match steps, but make sure you match steps parallel to her. Try not to cut her off, you know, just par- And the first owner came in and I can't remember if the mare walked off or not or just hung there. I think she may have, and uh, they match steps a bit, and then the mare comes back and hangs there with her. And so I said to the other owner, do you want to come in and and try it? So she came in, and she was in there, oh, not five minutes, and that horse just lay down and had a sleep, and it was really, really cool. I don't think I'd seen a sleep since she'd been here. So it was another... It was another instance of the, and funny enough, it was another Mustang, wasn't it? But it was another instance of that Cody the Mustang at that clinic in Texas. And I think that was the first part of unraveling her because it turned out she, you know, some of her forward issues had to do with the fact she was quite shut down. And, you know, the thing about shut down, so many horses that, that are lazy, people think are lazy, are actually quite shut down to a level of, a level of, you know, they're kind of half frozen and the reason they don't respond when you bump them with your legs or tap them with your whip or whatever it is you're doing is because when you are shut down, your your feelings get toned down a bit to the level of shut down that you're shut down. I mean, you know, I went to Africa a few years ago with my son Tyler and um, before we left, I just started, I don't know, looking up YouTube videos of different things in Africa and I remember seeing a video of a lioness 
eating a wildebeest cow alive. So this wildebeest cow has been caught and pulled down and she's laying on the ground on her belly, like with her front legs tucked under her, so she's kind of sitting on her belly. And this lioness is tearing chunks out of this wildebeest's buttocks. And the wildebeest's head is wobbling a little bit when, as the lion tears that flesh from her, her head wobbles. But she is not in any pain at all because by, by the time you get into that state, you know, Mother Nature provides us with all these chemicals in our brain that just flood our body and we don't feel that because, you know, you don't want to feel that much um, that much pain. It gets blocked out. It's kind of like when you go into shock and you don't, you don't feel the pain. Um, if anybody's ever been shot, stabbed, punched really hard or whatever, you know, or when you come off a horse and you go splat, boom, you hit the ground, there's a big noise in your head, but you really don't feel any pain for a little while because your body takes care of that. But anyway, so, you know, I think this horse was kind of a, a bit shut down, which is one of the reasons she wouldn't go forward. And so this was one of the ways of opening up. But this whole story I'm telling you here is about the, the number two thing, which was about the cat H approach, which is keeping something there until they feel better about it. So, and that's what I did with the flag with this mare. She pins her ears at the flag. So what I did with her was... You know, I don't know how many sessions later, but at some point in time, I thought I need to address this flag. And so I put a halter on her and I got the flag and I held it behind me and I brought it around. You know, let's say the mayor is standing at 12 o'clock in front of me. I've got the flag at six o'clock behind me and I slowly brought it around to five, four, three, and I held it at three o'clock. So off to my side and she pinned her ears and kind of half ran at the flag and I didn't move it at all. I didn't pull it away. I didn't tell her to get away from it. I didn't have it run away from her. I just left it there. It was neutral. And she kind of pinned her ears and had a go at the flag. And then uh, the flag didn't do anything. And then she kind of looked at it for a bit and I waited and her ears flicked forward. And then I took the flag away. And then I would bring the flag around to the side of me. So I didn't bring it up to her. If I brought it up to her, she might've, you know, bit it and struck it. But I, I brought it around slowly to about the side of me and when she pinned her ears at it, I just stopped right there. So once again, this is communication that I see your threshold, but then she came towards it after that with her ears pinned and I would just leave it there and she would pin her ears and it wouldn't make the flag do anything. And so then she would prick her ears and go, huh, that's an interesting flag. And then I would take it away. So that is that, that, that second step that Sarah mentioned in her article, which is basically that, that cat H type approach. So once again, I want to kind of recap the two different things I'm going over here. One of them is when you, when you are going to work on nothing but connection, okay? You're not, not trying to change anything. That's kind of like the going out in the pasture, sitting out there with them, hanging with them, whatever. That's, that's all about connection. But when you get into the, you know, that's all about relationship. But when you get into the training part, every little training instance I'm trying to have relationship before training you know if I go in to catch a horse and I'm standing there and as I approach them maybe they turn their head slightly away or their eyes slightly away I'll stop and step back and a lot of times when you've done that quite a few times uh, then they go oh hey how's it going but you know and that's a training situation I have a purpose I'm going to put this I'm going to catch this horse I'm going to put this halter on this horse but, so it only might take me five seconds to do that thing. But if you can do those little things all the way along, it's, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, it's kind of like if you're a man and you say to your wife, hey, did you get a haircut? I'm like, yeah, he noticed my haircut. That's, that's, that's a good thing. And so the, the more of them you can do 
the better. And I've had so many instances of this at clinics. I had a horse at a clinic in Australia uh, just before Christmas, maybe not last year, the year before, before COVID. And this lady brought the horse to the clinic. It was an Appaloosa. And, he, and so she's going to do some groundwork with him. And he just has no light in his eyes. He's, he's just dull looking. His ears don't move. I mean, this poor guy looks like he's just really inside his head. He's very, very shut down. And the lady brought him to the clinic and he looked to me like I couldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to ask this horse to do anything because it would make him feel worse than he already feels. But luckily he did something that was uh, bad but good. The lady's standing there holding him and as she's holding, you know, she's hanging on the lead rope. She's not holding on to the horse's chin by any means. She's holding the lead rope with some slack in it. And he would just turn his head really slowly and then just shuffle off, just walk off. And she would just pick up the lead rope and say, hey, come here. His name was Jasper. She'd sort of say, hey, just come here. And I said, okay, what we're going to do with this one is I'm going to match steps with him. So matching steps is all about connecting with him. And, and he, this horse was saying, I cannot connect with you. I, I actually think I'm going to leave. And so instead of saying, no, you can't leave, I said, well, let me have the lead rope. So I took the lead rope and Jasper turned his head and just slowly walked off. And when he walked off, I walked off too. And I walked off and I matched steps with him and stayed parallel to him when he walked off. So wherever he, wherever he went, I went. It didn't matter what he did. If he stopped, I stopped. If he turned to the right, I turned to the right. But I just stayed, par- I stayed the same distance from him. If you think about like a, like a sidecar is to a motorbike, I did that. I was just, I wasn't that close. but. You know, if you turn a motorbike around, it doesn't matter how many times you turned around, the sidecar stays in the same relations or the same distance from the bike. And I did this for quite a while. And sometimes after, you know, maybe 10 or 12 steps, a horse will connect with you and go, hey, I saw you, you matching steps with me. Like you really get me, don't you? That didn't happen with this horse. And after about 20 minutes of me matching steps with him, I said to the owner, okay, come over here and take the lead rope. But the only thing I want you to do with this horse at this today in this session, this two-hour session, is match steps. And so that's all she did that day. That session was over. They, she put him away and she came back in for her session the next day at the clinic and she didn't even wait for me, which is good. I think I tell everybody, after, when you come in the second day, pick, you know, what, you, what knowledge you got from the first day, start to use that to communicate with your horse. And so she came in and just started matching steps with him. And she matched steps with him for maybe half an hour or so and eventually he came to a stop at one point and she was standing there and I said you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna try something with him that I saw Elsa Sinclair do at a, at a clinic in New Zealand or at a horse expo in New Zealand last year Elsa was on one of the podcasts if you haven't li- listened to that Elsa's absolutely amazing and so I said let me have him so I walked over and I took a hold of the lead rope and I was going to lead him a little ways to a spot in front of the spectators and I was going to do I was going to take the halter off him and do something. But anyway, I took a hold of the lead rope and he kind of turned his head towards me and buckled at the knees and went boom and went down and went to sleep. Just buckled at the knees and went to sleep. And he's, he's out to it. And I said to the owner, is this, is this normal? And she said, uh, and I don't know anything about this horse at the time. And she, I said to her, is this normal? And she said, I haven't seen him lay down in three months since he lost his pasture mate. And I think, you know, when two horses are in the pasture together, usually they'll take 
turns, one standing guard while the other one has a sleep. And I don't think this horse has had anyone to stand guard for him while he's had a sleep. And so he hasn't been able to get that deep restorative REM sleep and he needs it. And basically what Tracy was the owner, what Tracy and I did was tell him, hey, we're, we're aware. We're actually aware enough that if you wanted to have a bit of a nap, we could keep an eye on the place for you. You know, it's kind of like if you own a business or something or other, you own a shop and you said to someone, hey, can you keep an eye on the shop for a bit? I just got to run down and get something or other. You'd want to trust that person. And it's a lot like that. So, you know, that's another example of where that has, um, I've used that at a clinic. And I could give you so many examples of, of it. It's, it's not funny. But I might give you some examples under saddle. And so there's something you can do with a horse under saddle to help them settle down. So I did a clinic in Holland a couple of years ago and there was a girl with a horse there and this horse is some sort of a a breed that's used in maybe dressage and stuff. I'm not sure if it was a warm blood or a thoroughbred or what it was, but it was one of those looking sort of horses. And when she got on, he appeared to be not quite anxious, but anxious, you know, like uh, walking around quite fast and you know rapid walking and really looking around here and there and he looked to me like if something went wrong he could explode okay and so I said can I hop on and he was he was really distracted like looking off here and looking off there with his ears pricked and I said can I hop on him and I'll show you what we can do with this and so I got on him in the you know she's got an English saddle the English bridle and I get on and I just turn loose and let him walk because she had been kind of hanging on to him because he's going to do something stupid and I get on him I just let him walk and if his ears were pricked on something and they stayed pricked on something like let's say it was off to the left I would just pick up on the right rein really softly until his ear flicked towards me Okay, when that ear flicked towards me, I would let go of the rein. Now, I accomplished two things there. One thing is when his ear flicks towards me, his thoughts just came off the thing that he's looking at over there. So if he's looking over the fence at something like, oh my God, I wonder if that's going to come over and get me. I might come out and eat me. I might die. You know, that's like having anxiety. Well, what I did when I flicked his ear towards me was basically like if you had a breathing, if you suffered from anxiety and you had a breathing technique you would use to get your mind off the thing that was causing you anxiety. So let's say you've got a box breathing technique. So when you start to get too overwhelmed about whatever's going on in your life, you just go, okay, I'm going to box breathe. I'm going to go in for four, hold for four, out for four, hold for four. Well, while you were saying those things, you were not thinking about, oh God, I've got to make a presentation in front of my boss tomorrow. And what if he fires me? Then I'm destitute and I'm out on the street. Those things aren't going through your mind at the time. And so with this horse, just having him flick his ear towards me for a split second, just takes his mind off that, oh my God, what's that over there? What's going to get me sort of thing. So, you know, it takes his mind off that for a split second. That's part one of it. But the second part of what's going on there is when his ear flicks and I immediate release, sorry, immediately release, I'm communicating my awareness of his awareness, of where his awareness is. So I'm saying, hey, I am so connected. I can tell what your mind's doing. That's how connected I am. I mean, you could pick up on that rain and when his ear flicks, pull him around in a circle and walk him in circles for five minutes there. That'd be five minutes where his mind is not on 
that other thing, but you are not communicating your awareness. And and the reason horses are, you know, if you ever you ever catch a horse out of a pasture and lead it away from there and it's screaming and hollering, wanting to go back to his friends, that's because they're aware that we're not aware. Okay, they they we're not providing them what the herd provides for them. So that you can do this under saddle. And so I I just did the ear flick for quite a while, and <clears throat> after a while, this horse started stop looking around so much. After a while, his ears started flicking back and forth. His legs got slower. He started to relax more. He stretched down over his top line. I think he started to lick and chew. He probably started going, <clears throat> you know, the horses make that noise. <clears throat> when they stretch over their top line, which the Dutch actually have a word for that. <laughs> the Dutch word for that is breezen, B-R-I-E-S-E-N. I don't think there's an English word that means, you know, that thing horses do when they start to relax and they stretch over their top line and they start to go <laughs> like that. Sorry if I did that in the microphone. but um, And so that was, you know, that's relaxation through relationship. Um, I had a, uh, and I often wondered, would this stuff work with a mule? Well, luckily enough, this year I did a clinic in Arizona and a lady came there with this with this mule and the mule had fallen in love with the horse that it was beside with in the pen at nighttime. So when she came in the arena the first day, she's under saddle, this mule is quite attracted to go back to the to the gate end of the arena, probably one corner. The gate was in the middle and then the corner next to the gate was the direct line back to the friend she'd spent the night with. And even though there's two other horses in the arena where she's not interested in them, she's interested in her friend. And this was causing a lot of issues for the, not bad issues for the rider, but she's, the rider's riding along and trying to, you know, go to a certain place and the mule's trying to turn around and go back towards that corner. And it, and it, you know, it's a bit of a, a bit of a wrestling match. And I said, can I hop on? And she said, sure. So I got on and I let the mule, I just, got on and asked the mule to walk and she walked straight back to that to that corner and stood there with her head up over the fence looking back at the the her little friend over there and so I just reached down I picked up on one rein and when her ear flicked towards me I let go and then she walked off along the fence and she would basically walk from the fence I mean from the corner to the gate and turn into the into the fence, back to the corner, turn into the fence, back to the corner, turn into the fence. And so while and the whole time her ears would be on the outside her ears would be pointed to the outside of the arena. And so what I did was one time I just picked up on the rein away from where her ears were and held my hand out to the side. So I'm I'm just putting a bit of a feel in that rein. I'm not pulling on it at all. And I waited for her ear to flick that way. And Initially, she might have went up and down a couple of times before her ear even flicked back towards me and I, I let go. And I did this over and over and over and over and over. And I got to the point where I could pick up on the rein and her ear would immediately flick, which means she wasn't so, so stuck with her friend. You know, I couldn't, when I first picked up, it took a long time for her thoughts to come off a friend. But then... Um, after a while, I could pick up on that rein and the ear came. So now we're going to get into the training. The ear flick was not, I was not rewarding a physical response. I mean, her, her ear moving is physical, but really it was her mind changing from one spot to another spot that I was rewarding. And then after a while, what I'd do is I'd walk along and pick up and she'd flick the ear. And if that ear flicked right away, I'd just leave my hand there and 
you know, half a second later, her head would follow my hand and then her feet would follow and I'd just let go. As soon as she even attempted to go in the direction I was pointing her in, I'd let go and she'd go back to the fence. And I don't know, I probably did this for half an hour or so. And eventually she started getting to where she was, she'd get to the corner instead of um, turning back towards where the horse is, she'd turn and start to go up the arena. And uh, so after a while, I just put the owner back on and had her mess with it. And then probably 10 minutes later, that mule walked the whole long side of the arena, up the fence, directly away from the spot she'd been really attracted to. And it was a nice forward walk and her ears were really flopping. If you've ever seen mules get those ears where they really flop back and forth. And the owner said to me, this mule's ears only ever do that trail riding. Her ears never do that in the arena. And all of that came down, came down to relationship before horsemanship. I was working on the relationship. I was working on letting her know I was aware of where her awareness was and when it changed. So it really doesn't matter if it's horses or mules. You know, they're both mammals as humans are, and a little bit of attunement goes a long way with them and I could go on and I could give you story after story after story but um, I think you've probably got the the point now but the big thing is you know the relationship before training is not just the initial relationship it's also about recognizing those little things whether you're catching your horse or whether you're riding your mule and she's a bit distracted or she's you know she's got some separation anxiety or whatever it is that you know, and in every instance, if there's a bit of an issue, you know, there's a bit of a brace, there's a bit of a no, initially reward the no to say that you see the no. And then what you'll find is once you get that little bit of relationship going on there, then the thing you want, the thing that you want your horse to do or mule to do will work because of the relationship you built, allowing them to say no. But doing this, you have to be kind of careful because... You've got to make sure if you're going to allow the horse to say no, you can only be asking questions that um, it's not that big a deal if they say no. So there's a, there's a lot of judgment involved in this. And I do think it is a little bit uh, next level and in, in both the mindset you need to do it and the application of it. But I also think it's next level in the outcome with with the horses i just think the horses are you know they they're so much brighter and you know they i think they can be much more like a horse a natural horse than um if you were just working on training them and so hopefully this podcast has inspired you to think a little bit about that stuff but uh yeah uh, my new principle relationship before horsemanship I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast and we'll uh, catch you on the next episode of the Journey On Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 650 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.